This is Mike Madrid. And this is Gregory Rodriguez. We're your hosts for Americanata, where we'll be exploring the intersection of race, class, culture, and politics during a time of extraordinary change. We'll be thinking out loud and processing what's on our minds as we go, unfiltered. And we're looking forward to you joining us for this discussion as we explore how we got to this tumultuous moment in the United States. Hey, Mike, good to see you on this uh, fine, what is it, Friday morning. Friday morning. So uh, let's just jump right into this. And uh, I don't know. We, I don't know if you watched Biden this week. I don't know if you've seen the news, but uh, I want to start with Karl Marx. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> to paraphrase Karl Marx, there is a specter haunting America, and it's the specter of wokeness. Mm. It's not the ideology, per se, I think, that has Americans on edge. It's the culture of public denunciation that comes with it. And, and sometimes it seems like the punishments are incommensurate commensurate, uh, for those denounced for some sort of, quote unquote, crimes. And every day you see a a campaign to take down generally a lesser public figure. They may lose their jobs due to pressure from social media campaigns. We also see long dead icons given their comeuppance. Um, so this has created a climate of fear. It's a fear of being denounced for some slight against someone who may or may not see him or herself in need of some special protection uh, for, for not using approved terminology you may or may not know, know about. And, um, I think the news media sometimes treats these denunciations as part of some sort of a grand national moral reckoning or that some season of that the season of public expulsions will lead to a more inclusive society. But we're becoming more and more aware, I think, that this climate has many Americans, particularly blue state liberals and progressives, keeping their heads down, waiting for this climate to die down. And then last week, uh, everyone's favorite Democratic political strategist, the veteran James Carville, finally blurted out what so many people are thinking, quote, wokeness is a problem and we all know it, unquote. So presumably, given who he is, he meant this is a problem for the Democratic Party. So, Mike, how big of a problem do you think this is, one, and what do you suggest the Democrats might do to begin to address this climate of fear that may come back, what Carville suggests, may haunt them in the coming election. Well, first, I'm a little taken aback that Karl Marx was woke, but I guess I shouldn't be, right? It was, a, pre it was, a, it was a paraphrase, brother. Oh. oh I was, was, <laughs> was going to have to go back through my Marx books and look for woke. I missed that chapter on wokeness. I also changed. I also put notes in mine and changed the words. Uh, look, I, I think it's a real problem. I think it's a very, very big problem. Actually, just today, Mitch McConnell announced that he was going to um, wade into the culture wars himself by introducing a bill to make sure that uh, the 1619 project was not taught in schools. Um, this is a winning issue. The wokeness issue is a winning issue for Republicans. We're going to get into that in just a moment. But let's talk first about the problem, as you've outlined, with the Democratic Party. And what the Democrats can do before. And what the Democrats can do. And I think they've yeah. already, I don't want to jump to the to the, 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 the chase here, but they've already, when Carville and Barack Obama are saying this is a problem, by the way, Barack Obama said this is something to be concerned about, at least the intellectual climate on college campuses. 
I mean, better pay attention because he's 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 not bullshitting. He's right. He's exactly right. He knows how to win. He not only knows how to win, but he's also um, he's also seen Democrats lose on these issues. And I think he's probably got a lot of experience and understanding the nuances of some of of these dynamics. Right. He's had to I mean, we can agree and disagree on how much he's had to thread the needle, but he certainly had to do a little bit of it to get to where he got to in life certainly in the, 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 the getting to the Oval Office. But th- there, is, there is a danger with a political danger with the climate that has developed around us trying to um, require others to conform to a social standard. And while that's not that that dynamic is not specific to the modern left at any given time. It's particularly pronounced on the left at this moment in time. And as a political strategist, as a professional, what I will tell you is this. One of the surprising dynamics of the 2020 election cycle was that for the first time, certainly in my lifetime, probably in modern political history, a high turnout election actually benefited Republicans. And I'm not suggesting that um, that uh, that dynamic is one going to slow down, but what I will say is this: the 2020 election was about a rejection of what people were viewing as extremes. That's what this was all about. At the top of the ticket, voters were showing up and they were voting against Donald Trump. I would argue more than they were voting for Joe Biden, at least those critical voters that that determine the outcomes of elections. That that mythical middle that we've talked about. But they were also, these same voters were voting for Republicans down ticket across the country, across the country. Republicans picked up seats while they lost a president in a high turnout election. That is a very, very peculiar and very significant uh, occurrence. That does not happen in American politics. It doesn't happen really anywhere. And so the question becomes, why? And what are they responding against with the Democrats? Because they were just as concerned and angered and frightened and 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 threatened and pissed about Donald Trump as they were with the Democrats. In other in other words, they were they were literally showing up and voting against something, not voting for something, which is increasingly a characteristic of our politics. But this is a warning sign for Democrats. And it's not just you know Mike Madrid of the Lincoln Project saying this. This is James Carville. This is Barack Obama. And increasingly, if they're going to avoid a disaster, they better pay attention. They got to start listening. The, 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 the requirement to conform, the requirement to set the standards for, for, by which people need to operate in, especially the rapid pace of the changing rules that we have, where no one is really, no one really knows whether or not they're being offensive at this moment, let alone what they're saying and how it could be offensive in a week or a year from now, is is not just frightening people because of the potential of social ostracization. And job loss. And job loss and loss of stature and, 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 and public humiliation. It's also pissing people off. And that's what Carville's saying. And, and he's right. There's this almost an overcorrection for this moment in time. There's no question there's an increased sensitivity. There's no question there's an increased sensitivity to some of 
the racial and cultural issues that have, um, you know, where, where there's just been there's just been wrongs that needed to be right. Right. I, I disagree I most, with you. This is. I think that I, I mean, I'll, I'll just stop. That's not. It's just not a correction. This is. An, you don't create inclusion by mass expulsions. But go on. This is. This is not a correction. You don't. You don't kill a bunch of people to prove that murder is wrong. And so you don't expel a lot of people to 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 prove that inclusivity is good. But go on. I, I won't go as far no, as I, I, will, this but, I will, but what I will go say is this. What, the what, I, what I am going to say is this, and I think this is right. Social ostracization is is very important in shaming a society away from bad behaviors. Just is. Just is. And I, I, and I, I believe that, that we've I, gone so, too so far with the, it. Okay. But we, we can agree on a lot of things, but social ostracization of an elected official who put him or herself up on a platform for public approval is one thing. A manager at the 7-Eleven down the street who never signed up for to be a public figure is another thing. So I disagree with you that public ostracization is ever a good thing for non-public figures. I just disagree with you. It's uh, There are social norms, that be, but social ostracization is too strong of a term to ever say it's good. That's, that's saying witch hunts are good. So I'm just no, trying no, to not. push back. No, it's a not. Bit. No, it's not. Social it, ostracization is a strong term and it's a strong thing. So I, I think disagree. I think Nazis, I think Nazis should be ostracized. I'll say that. I'm guilty of that. If that great. makes me a bad person great. or that's too extreme, great. then a guilty is charged. Great, I, great, great. So you just solved what? You just solved the problem of five crazy people in Ohio yesterday? That yeah. doesn't mean anything. Who yeah. cares? Yeah. No, no. The way healthy societies work is that norms are created through communities that say what's acceptable or not, that it doesn't require a Twitter mob of people punishing people and for people losing their livelihood. I'm sorry. There's a different, there's a way to do it. That is, that is co consistent with decency, consistent with the supposed norms you're trying to uphold and ostracization and humiliation really isn't, especially if the Nazi happens to be some low level worker who said something stupid on his lunch break. I'm not so sure ostracizing that person is of any great value to upholding norms. So Let's just go back to what the Democrats can do to solve a problem in which I think the average person, forget the public figures, the average person is feeling that shit, this might hurt them. What can they do? Are we looking at somebody other than a Carvel, a public, a, like an elected official taking this on? Do they step up and say, hey, people, is there a different way to do this? Do they, do they confront it head on or is that themselves? Are they looking or will they hang themselves by doing that? Well, like as I was trying to get to the point I was trying to get to was it begins with strategists saying you're going to lose and understanding the reasons for that loss. What I was trying to point out with the illustration with 2020 is that is exactly what happened. It was a rejection of that type of ostracization. And again, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but it's absolutely important in society. I'm not going to let that go. The problem is at a certain point, it becomes too much, okay? It becomes too much. There is a way to set a social standard and a norm. And I, sometimes I believe it's absolutely acceptable. Now, what Carville is saying and what Barack Obama is saying and what Mike Madrid is now postulating is that type of behavior can go so far that you are losing the adherence to what the social norm that you're trying to create. 
Exactly. You become the problem in and of itself. Exactly. And this is this is against free speech. It's against the notion of small government. It's against the notion of let letting people pursue their happiness. It is very much it's confining and it's making people afraid. It's a type of authoritarianism. Absolutely. But and like I said, it's not I don't think that the left at least at least overtly is not suggesting that they're worried about loss of freedoms, right? There's this bigger sense of a notion of equity and equality. It, and 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 on the left than there is on the right, the which I think started us down this road. The fear isn't a high-minded one. The fear is survival of the people who saying, "Oh no, I hope this doesn't happen to me." Yeah, the fear is in the self-censorship that is created and the keeping your head down and not being able to trust your colleagues. So it's it's really much more about people not feeling free. Uh, and there's a general overall question. I think you're trying to put this, normalize it in the course of history that this always happens. It doesn't always happen. That there is this belief now that expulsions and that a season of expelling creates inclusion. And that's a problematic thought. That's like, that's like we're gonna bomb, we're gonna bomb Iraq into democracy. There's, there's a little, there, 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 it may not make sense. It may be dishonest in its very core to think that inclusion is created by mass expulsions. I don't think I'm saying that at all. No, I'm not I, saying you're saying that. I'm saying there may there. I'm trying to denormalize this moment and saying that this is unique because of social media, because of the public facing nature of our of our lives. Mm -hmm. It's this is people have not been able to do this before prior to Twitter. You see what I mean? Yeah. Like you know, one of the most read and celebrated uh, 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 what is it? Short stories in American history, Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. I don't know the last time you read it. Uh -huh. I read it about a couple of years ago. It's about you know being stoned to death. Yeah. And I, I yes. read. I read it in grade school. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's, it's stunning, right? Yeah. And this is you know, is, is it about the witch trials? So that's there's an element of to that, but when it's ritualized and normalized. It makes it all worse. But again, so I'm really interested in the process. Like, you don't want Joe Biden talking about it, right? That's that just lowers his stature, right? So, so, and don't you need somebody who's not who's more than a a strategist and actually a an elected official, or is that too dangerous to approach? I'm I'm a little curious how how much would you put a public facing figure out on this subject? I mean, of course, James Carville is a brilliant. Like he doesn't need he doesn't need a job. That dude, right? right. He can say whatever. But it, how much is it risky to put a an elected official on this? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, if I were advising a Democrat, I would never advise him to or her to say uh, this. <laughs> so who right. who can say it for them? Well, the strategists can. And again, I think there's an elevated role of strategists. I mean, right? With the Lincoln Project, we're saying things that Republican consultants would never have said before right. or do. Right. And because of social media, incidentally, we were a lot, we were successful at that. Right. And I think that's where Carville comes in. You are also seeing former electeds, right? Like Barack Obama saying it, who no longer has political ambitions, who's liberated from right. the confines of this to say, this is not good for society, let alone the Democratic Party, right? What Barack Obama is saying is this is a flaw in our institutions of higher learning. This is a flaw in the way society right. works. And it's complemented by a strategist saying, you're going to lose if you keep doing this. Like, this is so, the wrong way to go. It's just real. It's like, it's just, it, there's no return on it, basically. You don't even have to argue that it's bad for people. You have to say it's bad for you. Correct. But I think when you have both of them saying it, I think that there will be a growing chorus of this. 
because they're, they're, clear, they're clearly giving voice to something that people quietly feel every night. Do you think this is a, do you think Carville spoke to other people in the party about it? Do you think? No. So you think that this, this dude just said what he wanted to say? Oh yeah. He's, he, okay. he doesn't need to ask or think about this. And he's, he's speaking from his gut on what he knows the, the electorate feels and these swing voters feel. And this is a Southern Democrat. So he was, he was a Democrat winning races in the South and knows how to speak to the other side. He certainly knows how to speak to the middle and he understands the democratic base. So let me flip to the Republicans. Don't yeah. they risk being like looking stupid by talking about Dr. Seuss too? I no. mean, don't they, they, ah, go ahead. Explain they're, how. They're leaning into that because again, all, and we've examined some of this before, right? That's all that remains in the Republican party, but it's also why I brought up McConnell today. McConnell's getting, wading into these, this has never been McConnell's bailiwick. Right. McConnell's a deep, deep insider, transactional. I've never heard him say a paragraph. Exactly. To your point. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. He does. He's behind the scenes guy. Right. He's the smoke and mirror, cigar chomping, backroom deal cutting dude. And he's so good at it that that's where he practices his craft. He's now making headlines just today, wading into cultural wars. McConnell is right. Like this is a sign that this is the only strategy for success. And we, sh- we should probably talk about this a little bit, given the Biden's proposal. But you saw this actually with with uh, Senator uh, Tim Scott, uh, black Republican from South Carolina, who, who who in the Republican response to Biden doesn't even 80 percent of his response did not even speak to, to Biden's pronouncements. It so, was all cultural warfare. So, but question. Does yeah. this mean that Biden's proposals are actually too successful for yes. them to want to attack? OK, and that's exactly what it means, okay. it, and, and because there is such popular support for this. For, for, for Biden's plan, I mean, like very, very strong numbers. That the only way to, to defeat this or defeat the Democrats is to not talk about those proposals. Second question, have the Republicans after Trump lost complete, it, 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 have they lost their, their ability to talk about overspending? <laughs> Completely. They're not okay. credible. So on they- <laughs> They're not credible on 90% of the issues that the Republicans okay. used to be on. Smaller government, you know, overspending, uh, so they can't even go to that. No, way. no. So this is their, no. so, so the, so this fight over culture wars is their only strategy. It is their own. That is all that remains. And the, 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 the irony is the irony is if the Democrats were just moderate enough and focused on the process of governing, the Republicans are so overplaying their hands that the Democrats will win by default. But to your point, the wokosos out there, the, the woke folk can't help themselves. They, they are going to demand a, a, a response to the cultural war, which is what the Republicans are doing, is they're just baiting them into a fight that they know they're going to win. So, so my sense, and let me get this, let me run this by you, is that the average Democratic politician is not a, in your wonderful term, wokoso, right? Mm-hmm. And that they're just scared of them themselves, right? So, right, would you agree with that assessment? The Democrats are afraid of them? No, 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 that they're actually not woke. Most officials aren't woke themselves. They're simply afraid of that wing of, of the left. Yeah, they're, yes. Right, but they're not, they're not woke themselves. They're simply afraid of the wing. That's, I'm making that distinction. I mean, I think so. It depends on what that what being woke means and where everybody draws their line. But yeah, essentially, right, right. And and so they them that then if that's true, then there's a lot of Democratic politicians out there who are scared of them too. 
who would love to have them off their backs. Which is why, yes, okay. which is why the people giving it voice are the people that are no longer shackled by the chains of the party hierarchy, right? It's James Carville who doesn't need to work again, who wants the party to succeed, who's saying you're screwing up. It's Barack Obama who's no longer confined to the ambitions of higher office. He's already gotten to the mountaintop and he's like, look, I'm making millions of dollars a year giving speeches, but wake the hell up. This is stupid. This is nonsense. This is bad for the party. So this is begging for an, uh, a Clintonian sister soldier moment and trying to take on an, uh, an aspect of the party that he wants to somehow moderate or bend to his will. Is that right? Uh, that's that's really interesting um ish and i and i say that because um i don't believe that it's going to come from the elected officials and i think i think look i think i've just so completely lost any hope that elected officials will actually lead the party anywhere both parties are really look time was like back in the good old days when i was a young man and you know the party the party leaders led the base they would go out and say something and then the base would be like oh, oh okay yeah that's the philosophy this is our guy we'll go follow him the exact reverse is the same now wherever the party base is at the elected officials scurry to get out front and find out where they're at so that they're not upsetting anybody yeah that's got to make it pretty unfun to be an elected official oh it's got to be horrible but why again, would you want to run if people... you're going to follow then not, rather than not lead but absolutely but and here's a big caveat the personalities that are driven to get into the public arena now as elected officials are so broken that they need that type of validation there's kind of a high and a drug of chasing where people are at to get that validation well, number one let's tag that for a whole show the broken yeah. personality yeah Mike Madrid's broken personality theory. I love yeah. it. That's 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 intense. So we're so you're saying you're positing that the, the 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 personality structure of someone running 30 years ago is different than it is than what it is now. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's always been those elements of it, right? To have a, to be a politician to run for president of the United States, there's got to be something a little wrong with you. Okay, to put yourself and your family in that kind of a position. To need validation at that level, to have climbed that ladder, there's something, there's a, there's a certain character flaw. Now, what I will say is this, I think for a long time, it was actually a valuable flaw because what it did was it brought people who had a particular sensitivity to understanding where people were at. They were thinking so externally about what people wanted to build popular support that it became a useful tool. Today, I don't see that. Today, I see that that is no longer a tool. That is all that there is. Right, right. Which is why McConnell is talking about the 1619 project. Right, yeah, that's like (laughs) that four people read. Right. Now, 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 I mean, and enter another uh, variable here. So last night, someone sent me uh, a uh, portion of a podcast by two black prominent black intellectual conservatives, John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry. Mm -hmm. And Lowry goes on an, an extraordinary rant that and he's speaking strictly, strictly on on race and and sort of wokeness, that the white middle class, the white working class, and uh, suburban working and lower middle class is just biding their time before they blow up. So he very ominously 
is predicting that there will be a white backlash like that's going to be ugly in itself right so to to right to, to the current racial politics so you're speaking specifically to race yeah um and I, so I that, think that's sure. scary. I think it's already happening. That I mean, and that's different than what we, we I wanted to frame the show as. Yeah. That was like average people just trying to keep their head down. Now I'm entering a new variable, and then white, sort of, even centrist Democrats, if you will, white suburbanites, just resenting the 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 moment of racial wokeness. That's that's scary. That's scary to think we might get another sort of resurgence of white anger a la Trump. It's like the second wave of the coronavirus. Fifth. I mean, I think we're, I, I think a guy like me is so relieved that Trump's gone. The, that just watching a video of, of, of somebody saying there could be another wave of, you know, Trumpism, racial Trumpism on the way, that, that's terrifying. So that I means that's just one. I, I think. As, as I think. Variable. I think. Again, I think. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, but I, you know, look, I we I've been saying in conversations with you. I think we're we've got two decades of this coming, because of the change, and we can get into why or why not. But it's not. It's, this is not a one-off. This is a society under, undergoing extraordinary transformation, and race is undeniably a part of it. It's not unique in American history, but I do believe it's particularly pronounced. Well, and part it, of that it, is the exacerbation of this social conformity, this requirement, this wokeness requirement right. that is being mandated. It's forcing people to take positions that they may or may not necessarily agree with. And that creates a backlash. It always does. Right, right, right. Now, I just finished, as you know, reading a book uh, by free speech advocate Greg Luganoff and social psychologist John Haight. And uh, two guys from the left is talking about it's called the the coddling of the American mind, and they're this is a very strikingly interesting book about this this moment of call out culture. They believe started with overprotected overprotective parents, children without uh, enough enough unsupervised time going to college, not fully mature, and then the college essentially adapting to their sensitivity rather than them toughing them up. And in a nutshell, the book is saying that colleges are, instead of preparing young people for the road, they're changing the road. And it, it, they made me feel that this is not one inevitable, two, it's not like the inevitable course of, of decades or history, that it, it was actually a particular moment of time driven by the time people, a young, a child can spend in front of a screen, in front of a phone. Um, so they actually argue that it's bad for the kids, it's bad for the people involved, forget the people they go after, it's bad for them. So it, I, I, you may be right about the decades, but it also, by, by learning the mechanics of it, it made me think, wow, a shift in the way universities operate. There's, there's another variable. A university president with some cojones could actually say, hey, you do not tell us who to hire and who not to hire. Right. Wow. That, that is an interesting prospect that the fact that universities have become corporatized and they're trying to to, to, to be the nicest to whatever group of students, they don't want to lose them. Is that even um, possible with the academy now? You're, but exactly what this exactly that, that, that that's a question and these men are are arguing that in part it's the fact that this is a big business and they they need to listen to the consumer and the consumer is the student and the student's parents who are paying and that is right so he, so to that extent that's both you could say that's either 
you know, baked in, or you could say parenting changes and parents changes and children change and the culture changes, but we don't have, so in addition to a Carvel or a Barack Obama, maybe there are shifts in culture coming up that would change uh, the ingredients of this sort of denunciation culture, but who knows? You, but you, you, saying two decades is probably safe. <laughs> you know, yeah, it may look, not I, be forever. I, I do believe there's going to be a backlash coming up because it's so stifling. Like people are just going to start pushing back. It's almost like a reverse of the Victorian era, right? It's just it's so stifling that it will last for a while. And I think, I think, I think that this book, The Coddling of America, as you've you've articulated to me, I think part of this is generational. Yeah, I think the way Gen Xers, of which I'm a card-carrying member, the way we raised our children was so different than the way we were raised in response to it. We were latchkey kids, right, who didn't have a whole lot of parenting. And I think we, we maybe we over-parented. I think mm-hmm. technology and the, the, the ubiquitous nature of technology and using tablets and phones. I remember my kids were getting phones, you know, in middle school. And it's, the kids are getting far younger now. I, I mean, so uh, what's the funniest text you ever got from one of your kids? Like that just blew your mind. That was it. <laughs> random uh, no, question. No, I, I, yeah. I think my kids listen to this podcast. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. But tell, tell me off. Uh... Yeah. I'll tell you offline. <laughs> okay. So, so, uh, but my point is, you know, generations respond to the other, right? There's a reason why boomers right. were the way boomers were. They were raised right. by the greatest generation. And then there's a reason why Xers are the way they are because they were raised by boomers. Well, the Xers are the, are the least great uh, generation, right? To use that terminology, right? Worst generation, would you say? I think, I don't know. I think boomers or uh, Xers are kind of, we're more of a, of a transitional generation. I don't think we were, we have any bad it- characteristics. I just don't think, I think we were, I would just make it fun of the greatest. I mean, if they're the greatest, we suck. Well, I don't, listen, We're the suckiest uh, generation. I'm just, uh, I'm just making that, fun here. But, I mean, uh, well, we, we were overshadowed by the boomers at the very least because they live so long. And like, our kids. And yeah. by millennials. We were yeah. overshadowed by both. I mean, I don't want right. this to turn into a Gen X bet. Yeah, 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 fest, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But I mean, I, I, the, the point I'm getting at is there is a reason why kids today are behaving the way that they are. Right. And I think that they have been largely coddled. They don't have, they were taught to fear the world and they were taught that they could respond to it simply by saying, I reject that. So quit being mean to me. Right. And the world is a mean place. So, so leave. <laughs> and, and as these gentlemen argue that this is, this is less about, this is about power. This is about grabbing the world by where, where it hurts and saying, we're not going to, this is, this is a, an attempt by a, a very privileged generation and a very privileged few of that generation. Forget the generation. These are the, these are the privileged of that generation um, to control the world and put it in the image that they want it in. And that's just not going to work. No generation has managed to do that, particularly a small minority of a generation that this, mm. these are the luckiest, right? These are the, these are the richest. These are the, these are the snootiest colleges. They have the luxury of having yeah. that type of an attitude. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, but 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 it, but it is becoming dominant in popular culture. It's a dominant thought on academic institutions. It's starting to to really uh, strangle our politics. It's it's definitely yeah. a dominant thought in the media, right? It it's what tank the Oscars so white stuff, right? Starts but, to starts but look to what change. happened. You saw what happened this year. They, the viewership they, it was, collapsed. Unbelievable! It's it, it's. 
wow, the viewership collapsed. So I, I, again, to, to the point you made about Carville, that this is actually not good for you, not for any moral or ethical reasons, but this actually has bad returns. That's when the media will likely turn around and say, well, shoot, this whole holier than thou treating these denunciations as if it were righteous this is actually people are bored and not clicking, then they'll probably shift. You're right. Wow, when it comes down to in America, the great movements are really done by, will it kill me or not? You know, for all our talk about big, uh, you know, flighty ideals, it all comes down to self-interest, doesn't it? Well, can I make a buck, right? Is there a market for it? Is there, a, is, is there a market for it? Which comes down to everything, right? Everything has to have a marketplace. And It is America, right, after all, I mean, Right. And if that, that is what is going to drive these decisions. I, I do believe that, again, I think that that's why the Oscars, and again, I'm going to use the word they overcorrected. They were over anticipating it. They came under so much scrutiny. They were being so socially ostracized. They're like, let's come up with this very peculiar recipe and dynamic of what has to meet the criteria of what's actually available for an award. And the response to that is, this is not the stuff that we want, you know, we're not interested in that. Like I just want to see a movie. There's, there's also the aspect, and I, I, you know, you, I'll, I'll go ahead and use your term overcorrection. But there's also the overthinking and overengineering, and you know, whereas nothing was ever, I'm not going to pretend that everything, nothing was ever fair in any society, right? But it's the overt engineering to the point where you have to jump through seven hoops, or and or buy six bushes, or and or, uh, you know, drive on the left side of the street. So the, it's just. It's just it's where the system gets so confusing. And again, it, it feels exclusive in the service supposedly of inclusion. And that's what this is all about. This is all about this, this very exclusive language that people yeah. are having a hard time adapting to. Yeah. The expulsions that are supposedly about inclusion. Uh, I also think that the bigger, for me, the bigger issue is does does it, you know, do you, do you, can you bomb a country into democracy? Can you, can you make a country more, more inclusive by excluding people all the time? Uh, I don't think so. So I think there's something just almost, that's why I, I took offense to the, the corrective, but I understand your use of the term is that I think it's entirely wrongheaded in the first time, in the first place. It's just, you're using a strategy that is almost, it's, it's on its face against the spirit you claim to promote. So what's our, um, well, look, I think, and again, let, let me take this back to the to the more, you know, the brass tacks here in terms of politics. This is what Carville is saying. He's saying that people are going to respond to this negatively. They already have. They are the evidence is there. The voters aren't buying this. It's a huge warning sign for the Democrats. The red alarm bells are going off. The question becomes. Does a popular former president and does one of the, you know, royalty of democratic political consulting have the cachet to move this forward when it's already been, look, this has consumed academia. It's consumed the media. Right. It's, right. it's starting to consume corporations. Yeah. It might be too far. It might be too far. They might be, it might be too far gone. But what I will say is in, this. In which I, case I, the Republicans will sweep, Correct. Yeah, and I, look, I think it's it's way too early to talk about that, but it is important and it is a warning sign because even if it's not a 2022 cycle, it's a generational problem for the Democrats. It just is because this is becoming dominant thought in the American left. And Absolutely. It's, it, it's culture 
the the doctor susification. I never thought I'd be able to use the word susification, but here it is on Americanada. The doctor susification of Republican politics works. It works because of this dynamic. It's working in response to this reaction that people are having to this imposed sense of social order that people, even if they agree with it, they can't keep up with it. They don't understand it. The new terms, the new language, the new uh, are, are the left need to parse everything, uh, everything from, from race and sexual orientation and, and, and ethnicity down to the finer points to find new ways that people are oppressed in order to, 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 to be woke is engendering a backlash. And we're going to see it at the polls. We're going to see it at the voting booth. And, and the question that you're asking is, will it be self-corrected on the left or will it be pounced on by the right? That's right. All right, brother. Talk to you next week. Have a Talk good one. Week. Bye. Thanks again for visiting with Gregory Rodriguez and Mike Madrid on this episode of American Atta. If you've enjoyed the discussion, please help us out, share, review, and give us five stars. We'll talk to you next episode.